You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now our scripture reading is from the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And if you're using the Church Bible, the New International Version, it is on page 1082. 1082. And we're going to read this evening chapter 14 and verses 1 through 14. Jesus continues the teaching that he's begun uh, on the departure of Judas from the upper room, chapter 13, verse 30. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now we come this evening to a fresh chapter in the section of John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 13 and verse 1, and going through to the end of chapter 17, that throughout the ages the church has often described as Jesus' upper room discourse or his farewell discourse. And in our expositions of chapter 13, I think one of the things that has been fairly obvious to us is that the disciples of Jesus, the eleven who are now left in the room with him, 
have been taken through a roller coaster of emotion. They have been embarrassed, first of all, by Jesus kneeling before them and washing their dirty feet. They have been shocked by Jesus because He has announced that one of them at the table is going to betray Him, even although most of them have no idea who that would be. And they have also been brought into a fresh sense, I'm sure, of awe of the Lord Jesus, as He has told them that He is on the verge of being glorified together with His Father. But now Jesus has just made two more statements that must have profoundly disturbed them. They go from embarrassment to shock and questioning. They go from shock and questioning to this amazing sense of relief and release that Jesus Himself seems to have experienced in the upper room once Judas had departed from it. And now they are encouraged that Jesus is going to be glorified, only to be brought down again, stunned, probably distressed by the way in which He is re-emphasizing to them that He is on the point of leaving them. And then as Peter engages Him in conversation, you remember that just as He had spoken about Judas betraying Him, He now by name, face to face. The identity of the betrayer was still unknown to most of the disciples. But now all of the disciples know that one of their number, the most outspoken of their number, is actually, before the next day fully dawns, going to betray the Lord Jesus. And it's this, not Presbyterian funeral services, It's this that is actually the context for Jesus saying to His disciples, So, my children, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I guess because most of us are so used to, at least if you're of a certain generation and have lived your life going to Presbyterian funerals, you are so accustomed to these words being read at funeral services to comfort people and to think of Jesus here as the great comforter that uh, ripped out of its context like that, it may not dawn upon you that Jesus is the one who has just most distressed them. He has said to them, one is going to betray me, another is going to deny me, and I am going to leave you. And it's in that context, and we're, we're meant by John to feel the tension, the paradox in the situation. It's in the very situation in which Jesus has said such things that we would think would distress Him. But He says to them in chapter 14, verse 1, So, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. What he does in these verses is, first of all, as you'll see, to give counsel for troubled hearts. And then, as two of the disciples raise questions about what he has been saying, Jesus provides a response for troubled disciples. 
counsel for troubled hearts, and then specific response to deeply troubled disciples. First of all, in the first four verses before Thomas speaks, Jesus gives counsel for troubled hearts. And of course, he's directing his words particularly, one might say in the first instance, absolutely exclusively to the 11 men who are in the room. We need actually to be quite careful about the way we read passages like this when Jesus speaks and addresses them in the second person plural. We need to remember we were not there. We mustn't rip these words out of context without first of all listening to how they applied to the apostles so that we may then learn how they begin to apply to us. And he's saying to these apostles who are in a state of some distress, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, clearly, he is not saying, don't worry, be happy. Nor is he saying, Christians never experience trouble. If we learn anything about the Jesus of the Gospels, it is that from time to time, He actually leads His children into trouble. It's not that He can't help them. It's not that He can't avoid it. It is that He quite deliberately does things to lead His children into trouble. So, He's not saying to them, if you possibly can in your Christian life, cocoon yourself in such a way that you will never experience trouble, because if you ever experience trouble, people won't think the Christian life is the great thing you said it was. Now, what he's saying is, when you're in trouble, and you men are in trouble, and when you're in my situation, and we've just been told very explicitly in the 13th chapter, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. So, this is the Savior who knows what it is to be troubled in spirit, saying to His disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And my guess is because He went on so quickly to explain to them why this would be the case that uh, none of them was able to put His hands up and say, what do you mean, let not your hearts be troubled? Your heart has just been and you have told us, and you have told us things that could so easily overwhelm us with distress. So, what do you mean when you say, don't let your hearts be troubled? Well, of course, he's speaking about the difference between the nature of our circumstances and the character of our response to those circumstances. The word, the verb that John uses here is a very strong verb. It means to be stirred up, to be shaken, to be disturbed, to be disorientated. And surely this is what Jesus means. No matter the difficulty of the situations in which we find ourselves, it is possible, he believes, for our hearts to remain stable and steady 
and our lives to be marked by poise, for us to be right in the middle of the storm and to be the person who in the middle of the storm appears to have a calmness and a poise like Jesus in the middle of the storm in the Sea of Galilee or later on the Apostle Paul in the middle of the storm on the Mediterranean Sea towards the end of the Acts of the Apostles that would lead to a shipwreck. And Paul stands out not as the great naval captain, but as the Christian ambassador who has a sense of poise. He is the, he is the calm in the midst of the storm. How does Jesus imagine his disciples will be, will be able to know that poise and calm in the midst of the storm? When all around my soul gives way, well, he says, first of all, because you trust in the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous may run into it and be safe. They knew the kind of thing we were singing a moment ago. This is the God who has been our help in ages past. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who has provided for His people. He is the God who led His people through the wilderness, the God who has governed history. He is the Lord of all. So, he says, there should be poise in your life simply because you know and trust in this great God, and also because I'm calling you to believe in me. Now, of course, they have been with him later on. He'll say to Philip, have you been this time with me, Philip, and you don't understand me? They had been with him in the boat, in the storm. They had been led there deliberately by Jesus, and they had seen a Jesus who was able to sleep in the midst of the storm, and they had seen something of His glory when He had calmed the wind and the waves. Shalom, he said. And that was the way they usually greeted one another in the morning. Here in Scotland, we greet one another. It's raining or it's shining or something to do about the weather. But shalom. May the full peace and, and the joy of God be, be yours. May may life be normalized for you in God's bounty. And this is, this is the way in which Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and the storm. He says, let God's, let God's purposes reign here. And there was a great calm. And He brought them as He had said to them at the beginning of the passage, let's go over to the other side. That's actually what he's saying to them here. He's saying, let's go over to the other side. I'm going to the other side, and I'm going to bring you to the other side, so let's go over to the other side. But the other side lay on the other side of the storm into which they were now going. And he's really saying to them, remember the sea. Remember the situations in which I was hounded and persecuted. And how in 
my life. There was this amazing poise that filled you with awe. You, you believe in God. You trust in the Creator and Provider and the one who has promised to be the Redeemer, and now the Redeemer is in the midst of you, and you've seen something of the power and glory of God in Him. So, trust in me. Draw near to me. You believe in God, he says, you believe also in me. So, you have God as your refuge. You have Christ as your Savior. And he says, I'm, I am going to leave you, but I'm, I'm going to come back to you. And when I come back to you, I'm then going to take you to be with myself forever. He's saying you have the prospect of heaven. It is absolutely marvelous. In my Father's house, many rooms, I'm going to prepare one for you. I'm going to come back to you. And then he says, you know where I'm going and you know the way. Of course, this should bring poise to us. But what is Jesus doing here? There's a principle here that surely we all need to grasp, and that is He is addressing disciples who see their circumstances as far larger than their Savior. And their eyes have been so diverted from their circumstances that they've they've lost sight of their Savior. They've lost sight of the majesty and power of their God. They've lost sight of what their Savior had been to them and done for them in past days. And of course, they've also lost sight of the glories of heaven. And he's really saying to them, in the, when, you, when you place this hour of distress against the, the dark, dark, backcloth of our present experience, but then lift that up and place it before the majesty of your God, the grace of your Savior, and the glorious hope of eternal heaven. Then you're looking at your circumstances through the right end of the telescope. At the moment, you're looking at God and the gospel through the wrong end of the telescope, and you're looking at your circumstances under a microscope. And he says, you need to, you need to learn these gospel principles. And of course, the beautiful thing is that uh, when he speaks to them here in chapter 14 at the beginning, uh, he is so gracious to them, isn't he? He speaks as though he assumes they understand this. Uh, he's not berating them. He's not bloodying their heads against the back wall of the upper room saying, you numbskulls, you should know better. In a way, it sounds as though he, he assumes that, of course, they would know these things. I think he's probably testing them, isn't he? You know, we sit and we listen to sermons and we are reminded of things and a preacher says, and of course these are things you know, but there's a little voice in your head that says, well, I know them there, but I, I'm not sure how deeply I know them here. But here is our Lord's glorious counsel for those for whom circumstances have grown too large before our eyes and God, and Christ, and the glories to come. 
have been hidden from our eyes. And they don't need to be, they don't need to be horrendous situations, do they? If you take a coin out of your pocket, I'm not sure I've got one in my pocket, and uh, I should never try and illustrate things like this in any way. If you take a small coin out of your pocket and bring it near enough to your eye, it can hide from you a gigantic panorama. The coin will seem enormous and fill your vision, and something that is truly enormous will vanish from your sight. And that's our tendency, isn't it? To make circumstances and sometimes to make people in circumstances, difficult circumstances and difficult people, to make these things large by by bringing them near to our vision so that we can examine them and try and work them out for ourselves and losing sight of the greatness and majesty of the salvation that's given to us. I mean, this is, in a sense, Jesus is just saying, you need to go back to first principles, boys. This is not rocket science. You don't need to go to a seminary to learn this, although they'd had at least a seminary education from Jesus in these three years. It's the heart of the gospel, the greatness of the God who works everything together according to the counsel of His own will, the wonder of the Savior, and the sheer glory of what the Savior is preparing for us. And then something very interesting happens. I mean, from one point of view, it couldn't be clearer than this, could it? It couldn't be, it couldn't be simpler than this. Know your God, know your Savior, know your destiny. And a very interesting thing happens, doesn't it, in the, in the narrative. Two of the disciples now have the courage to put their hands up and say, they both say essentially the same thing in different ways, excuse me, Jesus, I'm confused. What you are saying here is confusing me. And so, we find now Jesus' response to two distressed and actually distressed because they're confused disciples. In uh, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? You're confusing me. And then again, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You're talking about being the way to the Father. And one of the apostles is saying, we don't know the way, and the other one is saying, well, we're not very sure about the Father. And they're deeply confused. I guess when I was a teenager, if a teacher taught and someone who listened was confused, I would have tended to blame the teacher and have done the same with preachers. If I'm confused, then it's the preacher's fault. A very interesting experience with which I won't bore you this evening or hopefully any other evening when I was a very young minister. I was, I was 23, and I had a very dramatic experience of somebody telling me that what I had preached had confused them. And it was a moment of illumination for me, because, of course, what I'd said was crystal clear. How could it be otherwise? The moment of illumination was this. The reason you are confused is not because 
what you heard was unclear, but because you have lacked the key that would have given you understanding. And so long as you lack that key or refuse to use it, God's process of bringing you to a right understanding is almost bound to lead to confusion because you'll still be holding on to the wrong views of God you formerly entertained. And so you'll almost inevitably go through a period of confusion when the old order is passing away, but the new door hasn't yet been opened. The key isn't yet in your hands. And that seems to be the situation with these two disciples, with Thomas in the first instance, Thomas whom we delight to call the doubter, doubting Thomas. But Thomas, I think, is probably more pessimistic Thomas. And perhaps even underneath that pessimism, a kind of, of rigidity of thought that just can't flick the switch that will help him to understand the gospel better. So, he's saying to Jesus, if we don't know where you are going, how can we know the way? How can we know the way? My problem, he says, is the way. And what you are saying to me is confusing me. You are saying you know the way I'm going, but that's confusing me. Why is it confusing, Thomas? It's because of how he thinks about the way. Remember flying one night to Tel Aviv and uh, sat beside a secular Jewish lady. Uh, actually, a very orthodox Hasidic Jew was supposed to be sitting in the middle, but I could see he didn't want to sit beside a woman on the one hand and obviously a Gentile on the other, so we had a seat that was left between us, and we we fell into conversation, and uh, I was going to speak at a conference on the subject of the law. Oh, she began to speak to me about halakha. That's what we call the law, halakha, the way. And of course, that was how these people thought. What is the way to God? The way to God is the law of Moses. That's the way in which we walk. The idea of the way to this man was associated with the law of Moses, and presumably from some of the things he had been taught, the way to God was by keeping the various laws of Moses, and he's not got it yet. Of course, we have got it because, in theory, we've read John's gospel from the beginning. And John has said in the prologue to the gospel, here is the secret of the whole of our history. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus, who is the light, who is the life of man. So, when Jesus says to him, look, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's really summarizing everything that John's gospel has been telling us about him, that the law of Moses, in all its various forms, 
was intended to hold God's people together and to give them pictures of how they needed to be saved and how they would be saved by the offering of a sacrifice to God for their sins. The very sacrifice John the Baptist speaks about in the first chapter. Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And poor Thomas doesn't seem to have managed to get his head round the movement from seeing the law of Moses as the way of salvation to seeing the law of Moses as the way of God pointing his people to the salvation that would be found only in Jesus Christ. So that the law, as the New Testament says, was just a shadow of Jesus. But Jesus, this is what he says in verse 6, Jesus is the reality. And the law pointed them to life, but it couldn't give them life. And Jesus is the one who has come to give them life. So you see Thomas's problem here. The reason he is distressed and says to Jesus, Jesus, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way where you are going? And Jesus is saying, Thomas, don't you see how the whole of the Old Testament really pointed to me? And you're like somebody who's reading the Old Testament and, and not getting the point. You're not seeing that it points to me. Oddly enough, in that same flight, that same Hasidic Jew who, was, who had seat number 42B or whatever it was and shuffled around, much to the irritation of the the, the, the cabin crew and found a seat beside a fellow Hasidic Jew. I kept my eye on him all night long. All night long he was poring over Torah. All night long the Old Testament law was before him. He was following it with his finger, following it with his finger, following it with his finger. But you see, you didn't see where it pointed or he could have come and sat down between this lady, a female, and this Gentile, and turned to me and said to me, isn't it glorious how the law of Moses points to the coming of the Redeemer, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, poor Thomas he was, he was kind of the same, wasn't he? Kind of rigid in mind. And he needed to go through a period of confusion, which he did actually in the resurrection. How can it possibly be? You remember, I can't believe your testimony. Until eventually he saw how the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to Jesus. And when Jesus, you remember, spent time with them and opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Well, Thomas was confused about the way, but his friend Philip is confused about something else. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, if Thomas was the pessimist in the disciple group and uh, something of a 
kind of rigid thinker in the disciple group. Uh, The thing about Philip, from the little we know of him at this stage, was this. He always seemed to try and work things out without putting Jesus into the picture. Remember the narrative of the feeding of the multitude in John's gospel when when Jesus does the pastoral thing. He knows exactly what he's going to do. But he says to Philip, when Philip says, what are we going to do with this lot? They're starving. Where are we going to get food for them? And Jesus does the little pastoral thing. He says, well, you go and find some food. Ministers do that kind of thing, don't they? What we really need in this church is, yeah, you're right. How are you going to, how are you going to help us to do that? And Philip says, you know, take, take half a year's wages and we can't provide food. And uh, Jesus knew all along what he was going to do. The problem with Philip was that he was looking at how far away they were from Tesco And he didn't understand that the creator of the universe, who could feed the multitude out of a few loaves and fishes, was standing right in front of him. He couldn't see Jesus because of the greatness of the problem. And he needed to learn to see the nature of the problem in the light of Jesus. And so Philip says to him now, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You see what he's doing. He's going round Jesus' back, and he's saying, now, just show me the Father here, Jesus. And Jesus says with this surely gracious but real sadness, Philip, you've been with me three years now. Don't, Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I'm not only the way to glory, I am the one who reveals the Father. And this is really just what John had said, isn't it, at the beginning of the gospel. No one has seen God the Father at any time, but the only one who is in the bosom of the Father he has made him known. And Jesus is saying to him, Philip, you need to be clear about this. The reason there is no other way to the Father is because I am the one who has come to reveal the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The words that I've spoken are my Father's words. The works that I have done, they have been done in my Father's power. Absolutely everything about me has been screaming, I reveal the Father. How can it be that you have been this time with me? And the interesting thing is that if we take what Jesus says in chapter 13 and then in chapter 15, uh, Philip is a real believer. Philip's not what we would call an unconverted person. He's somebody who's already clean. He's somebody who's already in communion with the Lord Jesus. But he hasn't got this. He hasn't understood that there is nothing that can be known about the Father 
that hasn't been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we're too hard on Him, I think we need to think about ourselves too, don't we? I don't know how many Christians I have met with privately and pastorally of whom this has also been true. Jesus has been everything to them. But the Father, one of their deepest fears is that somewhere behind Jesus' back, the Father may be different in some way. One of the ways in which uh, that emerges, isn't it, when, when things go wrong and we, we almost instinctively say, well, why is God doing this to me? What have I done wrong? Why is He so displeased with me? Christians who live in a kind of fear of the Father, although they love the Savior, and what Jesus is teaching Philip and us here is that if you were to ransack the eternal being of the first person of the Trinity, the Heavenly Father, you would find absolutely nothing in His character that was unlike the Lord Jesus. And so, he's saying to Philip, Philip, this is why I said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that leads him to these words that he ends the passage with. You notice he had begun by speaking about faith. If you're going to be stable in this situation of trial, then you must trust in the Father. You must trust in the Son. You must anticipate the glory. And then at the end of the passage, he turns from speaking about faith as the foundation of poise and stability in the midst of crisis and difficulties in the Christian life, to speaking about how important this is going to be for them in their future ministry. It's the faith by which they trust in the Lord that will be the faith in exercise that will mark their ministry. And this is the reason why Jesus says these things to them. Verse 12, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Those are mysterious words, aren't they? Those who believe in Jesus, these particular disciples in particular, he's saying to them, as they believe in him, they will actually do greater things, greater works than he has done. Now, uh, we don't have records of them doing that, do we? Uh, we have one or two occasions in the Acts of the Apostles where it's possible that uh, someone is raised, at least from near death, but uh, we don't find the apostles doing the kinds of miracles that the Lord Jesus did. One or two little glimpses, Peter and John, uh, and the man raised in the name of Jesus. So, it's fairly clear when you read the New Testament that Jesus is not here speaking about works in the sense of signs of His own identity. But then when you stand back and 
you notice what he's saying. You will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Difficult to get inside that, isn't it? The reason you will do greater works is because I'm not going to be here. I am going to the Father. Why is his going to the Father the reason they will do greater works? That's the logic of what he's saying. The statement, you will do greater works, has got to be tied into, you'll do them because I am going to the Father. Now, what's the connectedness there? Well, it is, of course, what he's going on to speak about in the next section in chapter 14, that when he goes to the Father, he will pour out the Holy Spirit, and something will happen the very day he pours out the Holy Spirit that never happened throughout the 33 years of his life or the three-plus years of his ministry. Jesus never preached a single sermon that brought 3,000 people into the kingdom of God. Never. Not even at the beginning of his ministry did he preach a sermon that brought 3,000 into the kingdom of God. But a few weeks later on, as Jesus has gone to the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter of all people stands up and he gets it. He gets it that the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes down saying, yes, it's all about Jesus. And that day, 3,000 are converted, and if you read the few chapters that follow in the early chapters of Acts, they pile into the kingdom of God in enormous numbers. And over the peace have been doing so for 2,000 years, in their hundreds, in their thousands, in their hundreds of thousands, in their millions upon millions upon millions. And all as Jesus will later pray because of the word that the apostles spoke. So, you see, there is a, there's a deep connection. What's the connection here? The connection is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ that transforms our lives when everything around us seems to be in confusion. And so, there is a consistency between what we are and what we say we believe. And it's within that arena that by this same faith we're able to speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may be through just one of our lives. It's almost unbelievable, but it's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Through one of our lives, more people may be brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ than Jesus Christ Himself brought to faith in the Lord. Jesus Christ, and all because He is truly such a great Savior. I mustn't leave this passage without noting the way in which Jesus, uh, in comforting His disciples, says something that troubles the world in which we live. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
That is the most exclusivistic statement imaginable about the Christian gospel. There is no other way to the Father. I can understand why people who know nothing of Christ and know nothing of the Bible would imagine that there are other ways. But it's not possible to hear the Bible, to hear Jesus, and imagine there is any other way. To imagine that you could ever go to the Father at the end and uh, Him to say, by what way did you come? Did you come here through Jesus? And to say, no, I found another way. Don't you think the Father would say, so that my sending of my Son, the suffering of my Son, the desolation of my Son, the cry of my Son in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there is another way than this, please find it, to which I said, no, my Son, this is the only way. Do you think in your foolish arrogance that you have found a way that the Almighty God of heaven and earth and His Son, Jesus Christ, were never able to discover? No, He is the only way, because He's the only way God Himself found to bring us to glory. And when we grasp this, the the exclusiveness of the Lord Jesus, but the grandeur of the Lord Jesus, then something of this stability and poise that they lacked that night, but He so clearly demonstrated, will also be ours. My friends, we will be tested, will we not, throughout our lives, small ways and large ways, big deals and small deals. What are we to do? Anchor ourselves in our great God. Trust our whole beings to our great Savior. And always look at the things of earth in the light of the things of heaven. And then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. May it be so. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in this farewell discourse. We thank you that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can at times almost feel as though we are brought into His very presence and hear His very voice speaking to us. And this we know is simply true because He has taught us that He knows His sheep by name and calls them by name and his sheep hear his voice and follow him. Lord, our heart's desire is to follow you wherever you lead us. Lead us into storms, but show us there your glory. Lead us from this world to the world to come, that there we may be with you and behold your face forever and forever. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.